Okay, here we go. March 1st, 2015, lecture discussion number 188 on the Book of Romans. And all of you out there listening on CD or on the Internet right now are saying to yourselves, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like Pastor Kleinister. Well, it's not. This is separate, Dave. And due to technical difficulties and our redundancy deciding not to redundate, uh, we've lost about the first five or ten minutes of the lecture. So, But not to fear. I, I take good notes, and here's what I wrote down. Here's what he's, I think he said in the very first part that, that you'll miss. Uh, we're getting to the sign of the saving of Israel. We're gathering uh, the momentum to get there. Now look at these verses. Romans 1, 18 through 20. Romans 9, 1 through 5. Romans 9, 25 through 27. Romans 11, 26 through 27. The signs are cropping up. Watch what's happening. Pastor tells us some profound things that we're seeing right now. Uh, we're talking about the things that God does alone. The saving of Israel had just won. God accelerating the universe directly relates to the hatred of the nation of Israel. And from here, I'll let Pastor take it away. The acceleration of the universe relates directly to the acceleration of the hatred of the nation of Israel. We are watching the increasing hatred of the nation of Israel. Again, it's happened before. It's happening again. And it accelerates very quickly. Look at your college campuses now. The anti-Semitic rage and hate is everywhere on the college campuses. This is an interesting time to be alive. So, we got to where we are this sign of the saving of the nation of Israel by defining wicked and lazy in Matthew 25. For those of you on the internet, uh, we've uh, been discussing at the end of the lecture, the post-game and the pre-game uh, talents and ability here. And, uh, um, and I'm pretty confident that everyone has that reasonably resolved now. The issue then switches to wicked and lazy. And that's how we got to the sign of the, of the saving of Israel. The third slave in Matthew 25, 26, he's defined as wicked and lazy by God himself. And, and, the, and he is the one that hides and conceals and withholds uh, the talents, if you will. He buries the talent that he has, the one um, item of gold. And he does it for the single purpose of the imposition of death on others. He's attempting to cause the spiritual deaths of, of as many as possible by burying the saving truth of God. You're all familiar. You could require, you could quote it for me immediately. There's no greater love, right? What is the definition of no greater love? What is it? Do it. A Bible quiz. No greater love hath what? Then he lay down his life for another. So we have a definition of no greater love. So we should also then be able to contrast it with what? Yes, I should know. If there's no greater love, then clearly I'll have the inverse or the converse. I'll have no greater wickedness. Or evil or whatever you want to call it. So begin to start to formulate what is the no greater wickedness. 
Last Sunday, I noted that there were three lies that are most often presented in a triad or a group. They're grouped together as truths by the atheistic community or the atheistic philosophers that control our media and control our campus, our campus, uh, our college campuses. And the atheistic people are resolute. They want everyone to believe that all life, our lives, uh, your life, my life, all life is worthless and meaningless and hopeless. That is what they want you to believe. Ask the motive for that. Why? Why am I bringing up the, uh, uh, the atheistic triad after I asked you the definition of no greater wickedness? I'm trying to help you understand where I'm headed. Not that you want to ever understand where I'm heading. That's not necessarily a productive place to be. But there is, without dispute, a large group of people who have control of the secular media and the secular college institutions who want everyone to believe that all life, our lives, are meaningless and hopeless, purposeless. The atheists have a mantra of sorts that they repeat. It's almost a a litmus test. Are you acid or alkaline? That's a joke for some people. You you see, you must believe in these three things to be in the club, to be in the group. And you have to believe them in totality, in total. You cannot have any uh, area where you do not agree. If you don't agree... Then you're subject, you subject yourself to derision and extreme, hateful mocking. If you don't believe me, try it. And to repeat the, uh, the grouping, if you will, the triad, everyone must believe in evolutionary atheism. So that's one of them. You have to believe that uh, life comes through a physical process. Life which is impossible to define, must be, however, reduced to a physical process. So everyone must believe in evolutionary philosophy, evolutionary origin, which has as evolutionary thought, which has as its singular purpose to render all life meaningless. That's its whole whole design. you got to believe that. And then you now have to believe, to be in the atheistic uh, hierarchy, you have to believe in anthropogenic uh, climate change used to be global warming. I'll keep it global warming so that I can keep my uh, my labeling consistent. And then you have to believe in eugenics, specifically the abortion industry, population control, whatever you want to call it. But it's all about the abortion industry. And they will say to you, they will say, as I mentioned last week, I believe in, abo- in evolution, I believe in a man-caused global climate uh, disruption, and I believe in abortion. They will put those three together, and they will tell you it is their, it is their almost their sacrament. And they will insist that science has settled all three of these issues. They use the scientific community as their ally. And anyone who dissents will be labeled as stupid, a denier, someone to be loathed, held in contempt, and persecuted. And ironically, as science, uh, to just take one issue, continues to reveal with uh, things, with their technological advances. Did you see that Israel has a, it's called the Israeli Project. Did anybody see that in the news this week? They have now have 
they have created a holographic system where uh, with with magnetic imaging they can look inside your body and the device the machine will produce for the surgeon or for the doctor your heart for example and it'll put it in a holograph that you can now physically almost physically manipulate it open it up and look inside and it will actually be reproductive of what is inside your body so he can hold your beating heart in a holographic sense that's what it's called the israeli project look it up it's fascinating well what are we going to use it for are we going to use it for hearts well, we can. Livers, we certainly can. But what are we actually going to The technology is so advanced. What's going to happen? It's going to attack abortion. Because I'm going to have the baby in my hands. So here come the Israelis with an extraordinary weapon against the abortion industry. I don't think that's an accident. High-definition 3D ultrasound systems... Uh, are by themselves, the, without the holographic technology that has just come. High definition 3D ultrasounds, all of you have seen them. They have firmly established that it is a baby that is killed by the abortion industry, the abortionists. And now there is no controversy. It is without dispute. I am old enough and I'm afraid to tell the internet, many of you here are old enough that dated all of us. We all know who Gilligan is. We all know who Maynard Krebs is, too, don't we? And Dobie Gillis. See, that well, that predates Gilligan, if you know that. That's really problems for you. She has no idea. Good for her. That's good. It's good not to know who Dobie Gillis is. Uh, anyway, uh, but the eugenists, the abortion industry said what in the beginning? It was a blob of tissue. You remember that? I know that was just in the 60s and the 70s, so it's not that long ago. But they told us it was not a child. That it was a blob of, it was a mass of tissue. No different than a cyst almost. That's how they phrased it. Now we know that they were lying. We know the eugenicists lied. And they knew that they were lying. They all along knew that was a lie. But they so wanted the abortion because they so believed the population control nonsense. Eugenics is a, a particular evil that is hard to define and hard to, uh, to get in its box what motivates a eugenicist. But anyone and everyone now can see that it is a living child. And yet they still lie. And they change the terms. Pro-choice, they say. Fetus, they say. And this is a, one of Chronister's absolute truths that I've had for a long time. No, no mother who uh, chooses to allow her baby to live ever calls her child a fetus. Never. She always calls it a baby. Fetus is now exclusively assigned to the death culture, the abortion industry, and they use the term of choice to hide and bury the truth of their abortion activities. 
how much money they make. And, I, and I've said before, evolution and man-caused climate change are non-falsifiable. What I mean by that, it, it doesn't matter what evidence you provide, it's assimilated. There's constant deviations in the foundational premises, premises of evolution and man-caused climate change. Notice the emphasis on human-caused. And so uh, the, these these deviations, these problems um, that refute, it's an onslaught of information, by the way, now an onslaught, if you didn't hear me, of information that refutes their uh, belief systems. Atheistic propaganda, to repeat, is not, it is not designed to persuade or to convince you. It is intended to humiliate you. Covered this last week. As it becomes more and more obvious that it's a lie, it's the pressure then to get you to assent to the lie is increased. And they also pressure you to repeat the lie because they know that if you will agree to a lie inside of you and then you will manifest that and repeat the lie, you become morally bankrupt. And that is the purpose of the atheistic propaganda. Communists. You cannot separate atheism from communism. Someone who says he's a communist is always an atheist. There is no exception. And so to capitulate or to yield to, to patent lies is, a, is to willingly cast away one's sense of goodness. And to darkness uh, such will go. Romans 1, 24 through 25. Romans 1, 28. I bring all of this up again today to reinforce the principle. Atheism is premeditated, deliberate lying for the purpose of stripping away the ethical decency of people to destroy their morality. Again, I'm leading you. You know what no greater love is. What is no greater evil? No greater wickedness? I ask you to consider that. We'll go over it in the weeks to come, but I ask you to consider it so that you'll recognize it when you see it. As evidence of all of this, I submit it is not coincidental that evolutionary precepts cannot account for altruism. What I mean by that is sacrificial goodness. There is no evolutionary explanation that can explain sacrificial goodness. Goodness does not have a physical origin. Evolution is a physical process. Altruism, our goodness, our love, our mercy, those are spiritual in nature. They have a spiritual source. Goodness, love, mercy did not and cannot come from a physical process. Evolution is a physical process. Goodness is explained in the Bible. The source of goodness, the origin of goodness. And thus, all of that's connection to 25, 14 through 30, because what we're trying to define, I raised it off the board, is wicked and lazy, right? That's what we're doing. <coughs> and it's a Roman study, though it may not seem with it. Okay, that's where we've been, so where are we going? Well, let's see. What's happened this month? This week? 
It has something to do with the sign of Israel. Hundreds of Assyrian Christians, let me repeat that, hundreds of Assyrian Christians. Have you been reading the news? They're Assyrian Christians. Well, that's very cool. It's not cool that hundreds have been captured. That's an act of evil. But they're recognizing, the world is recognizing that these are Assyrian Christians from the nation of Assyria, the ancient nation of Assyria. But hundreds of them, unfortunately, were captured by the Islamic State forces. And mostly these are women and children and, and the elderly. And the Islamic State has predictable evil intendment. It's not difficult to accurately predict the actions of the Islamic State. Choose the most evil thing you can. That's what they intend to do. And as you know, the Peshmerga Kurds and the Assyrian Christians are fighting together. And they're driving back the Islamic State to give the United States Air Force its due, as we should. Um, They are assisting that. And so we have this wonderful unity of the Kurds and the Assyrian Christians side by side. And thus, Isaiah 19, 23 through 25 is now on the board. In your lifetime, 19, 23, whoops, whoops. I was talking to crazy Becky today as she came in. How are you feeling? She's on her fourth week, and I'm on my fourth week of this illness, and we're still making it, um, but don't eat off my plate. That's a great idea. First time I met Lindsay, she came over and took my popcorn out of my bowl. That freaked me out. Those of you who think Lindsay is, is timid, obviously, very focused. Let me read Isaiah 19, 23 through 25. It's looming before you. I cannot say enough how incredible it is that you are right now watching Isaiah 19, 23 through 25 occur in your lifetime. In that day, here we are reading it now, verse 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. A highway. What? What, what do you mean? Well, there always has been a highway, as I said. The Syrians uh, and the uh, Egyptians under uh, Abdul Nasser closed the highways. So it's just a recent event that in the last 50 years. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. Serve what? Serve who? What is What does God mean when he says serve? Are they waiters? And the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians in that day. What day? In that day, Israel will be one of the three with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the land. Verse 25, Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt my people, Israel, and Assyria, the work of my hands. And so Isaiah 19, 23 through 25, 
is called the blessing of Assyria, Israel, and Egypt. And we haven't had an Assyria. We haven't had an Israel. All we had was an Egypt. Thousands of years. Now we've got an Assyria, an Israel, and an Egypt. And it says that these three will fight together. They'll fight together at the end of the age of the Gentiles, and they'll fight primarily during the tribulation, particularly at the end of the tribulation. They rise up together and fight the forces of the Antichrist. These are three who will serve the Lord God of Israel, and here they are. So I wanted to ask you a question if you've read the news, right? How close are we to the blessing of Isaiah 19, 23, and 25. The sign of the saving of the nation of Israel by Christ alone, by God himself alone. How close are we to the blessing of the of Assyria and Egypt and Israel? Who's fighting the Kurds? Uh, who's fighting the Islamic State right now? The Kurds, the Assyrians, together, side by side, and who else? Egypt and Jordan. We have a situation where fighting side by side right now are the Assyrian Christians and the Egyptians. Just like Isaiah 19, 23 through 25 said. Your Bible, whoever wrote it, is really lucky. He's just really lucky. Or he is outside of time. You pick. Okay, what shall we do next? I received a question on Romans 8.32. You're going to say, now, see, I get to put Romans in here now. People are going to say, as they often do about me, that you have no idea what you're doing. I agree. That's probably true. But I do have a plan. It's not necessarily the same thing. I got a question on Romans 8.32 I thought would fit in here really nicely. So it's, this is a good place to fit this verse in. And here it is to you. He who did not spare his own, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And their concern was with the word, or their issue was with the word spare. He who did not spare his own son. And they struggled with that. It causes many commentators and students of the Bible alike to have problems because there is a group out there let me start erasing the board a little bit. There's a group out there that uh, that sees it as validation of their position. They use uh, Romans 8:32 to validate that, and they use that word "spare his" or that part "spare his own son." Okay, and what is their position? Their position. This is how it gets to the talents. Those of you who are wondering, they see the word spare as a word of inferiority. I hope that makes sense to you. They see God did not spare his own son. I would read that as God did not spare himself and I would have no problem. But they read it as God the Father is in a superior position to the Son of God. And therefore, there's a separation between them. One is in control. One is in a higher position. 
And they think in this uh, verse they use uh, to validate that kind of thinking. Uh, a long while back, I've confronted this uh, here at Cliffside, and I asked this question. Uh, you might remember those of you who were here. It was in a different building. I asked this question, is Jesus Christ forever subordinate if you wish, secondary, is Jesus Christ forever subordinate to God the Father? Now, I know that that is a blasphemous question on its face. It should never even be uttered, much less be asked. It's pure, absolute heresy. I know that. If you know the rules, then you might be able to break one or two occasionally. But I asked it because at the time I knew that I had a number of people attending Quite a big group, 30 or 40 people, who believed Christ to be significantly less important, lower, subjacent. Pick your own adjective. Insert. And as you know, my stated objective here at beautiful downtown Cliffside is to drive away as many visitors as I can every any given Sunday. That's what I do. It's clearly something that I'm quite successful at. Look around. Anyway, I knew beforehand that this question was going to cause problems as soon as I wrote it down for those who think the title Son of God or Son of Man or Second Person of the Triune Godhead, those people who think that those titles contain the implication that Jesus Christ is less than God, which means he's not God. Do you understand? If you think he is less than God, then he can't be God. So you've now completely removed his deity. And I knew it was going to cause problems, and of course it's my plan to cause problems. And so it did exactly as I thought. By the way, the Jesus Christ is subordinate uh, to God uh, view is predominant. It's uh, predominant in the cults, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons. Pick one of your cults. Uh, It's also predominant in the seeker-sensitive, fuzzy-wuzzy contemporary church of our time. As you know, Jesus Christ is never not God. Never. Never less than God. Never subordinate to God. It's impossible for God to be subordinate to himself. Just because a verse confuses you, you struggle over the word spare or some other word that you find, just because a verse confuses you, just because a single word causes you concern, that does not justify heresy. That's what we call good luck with that. Do not stand before the throne where Christ, God himself, will be sitting there and try to defend being a heretic because you couldn't properly interpret Romans 8.32. Not going to work. Or Hebrews 5, 7 through 9, or Matthew 26, 39 through 42, or Psalm 22, 1, or Mark 5, 30 through 31. Those are just a few of the ones that are incessantly butchered. And then, of course, my favorite, as you know, is Hebrews 5, 7 through 9, because Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 ends with Hebrews 5, 11. All you have to do is keep reading. No one does. They, they read Hebrews 5, 7 through 9, and they decide that Christ is not God. They become heretics, and they stop and run. 
But if they just kept reading a couple more verses, they get to Hebrews 5.11. It contains the most fantastic explanation of why teachers insist on being heretics or blasphemers. It's right there for you. Why Christians will believe nonsense. It's right there in Hebrews 5.11. You can't miss it. Why Christians will will fall down over the word spare and begin to blaspheme the person of Christ and ignore the overwhelming number of passengers that passages, sorry, did I say passengers? More medicine. Start again. Why Christians believe nonsense? Why Christians will just ignore all these passages? It's just a trove of them over and over again to testify of the absolute Godhood of Jesus Christ. They will ignore all of them, thousands of them. They'll find the word spare and they'll become completely, totally the opposite of what they should be believing. And Hebrews 5.11 explains that. It says, these things are hard to explain to you. The Godhood of Christ, the Incarnation, without controversy, great is the godliness, the mystery of godliness. These things are hard to explain to you, Hebrews 5.11 says. And it says why? Because you have become stupid. That's what it says. They're hard to explain because you are stupid. Yeah, it ain't clearer than that. You're struggling over the Godhood of Christ. You think he's subordinate, he's lesser, he's not complete, he's not God at all. Because you're stupid. Actually, it says hard of hearing. But all it does is take a little time to realize what hard of hearing means. Dull. It says dull of hearing. Okay? I'll help you. Dull means what? Stupid. There you go. Okay. <laughs> Why did so many people leave during that lecture a few years ago? Huh? That's what you're asking. Huh? <laughs> and they did. They came right up to me and said, we'll never come back. And I said, well, I kind of knew that. But if you're going to ask me to say that Jesus Christ is not God, at any time in my so-called career, you've come to the wrong place. And you've got lots to choose from. Go and be happy. Because I'm going to make you unhappy every Sunday on purpose. It's my focus. Okay. Romans 8.32. What's it say? He did not. If he did not spare his own son, if he did not spare himself, if God did not spare God, right? Romans 8.32 has a compliment. Do you know where it is? Go. Genesis 15 is absolutely correct, by the way, but you have to get there by going to Genesis 22. But he's absolutely right, because I'm going to put Genesis 15 on the board again. Take myself is exactly right. But that's way too complicated for today, Supper Dave. So we're going to go a different direction. We're going to go to Genesis 22.12, where the exact same phrase is used. 
almost the exact same phrase. Let me read it to you. And he, God, said to Abraham, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. That is almost word from word, Romans 8.32. Because the word is not spare. It is withheld or withhold. Now, that'll take you some time to prove that to yourself, but that's where you're going to end up. You have not withheld your son. It's not spared. It's withheld or withhold. He who did not withhold his own son. I want to go back to Genesis 22.12 really fast. Let me read it to you. And he, God, said to Abraham, Do not lay your hand on the lad... Or do anything to him. What does anything mean? For now I know. For now I know? How does the omniscient God say the words, for now I know? What does that imply to you? Don't make a mistake and be a heretic here. Did you think that he just learned it? That would make you a what? A blasphemer, yes. Don't do it. Remember, dull equals stupid. Stay the course. So obviously something very special is happening in this verse, isn't it? For now I know that you fear God. What's the definition of fear God? Since you have not withheld your son. Romans 8.32 He who did not withhold his own son... And again, if you take the time to study the phrase and compare the context, you'll conclude that withhold, withheld is correct. And then you'll also recognize that Romans 8.32 equals Genesis 22.12. So Romans 8.32 is talking about the event that happened on the mountain when Abraham took Isaac up there as a sacrifice. That's what Romans 8.32 is about. If you think that somehow it's got something to do with the deity of Christ... Then, in the ditch you are. Once you understand that Romans 8.32 is in the context or has the complement of Isaac and Abraham on the mountain with the wood, then you, that eliminates any such thinking that uh, it uh, is referring to Christ not being God. Genesis 22.12 is the typological offering of Isaac. It portrays the crucifixion of God. It portrays the crucifixion of Christ. It is a dim, a faint, and incomplete little picture. 832 Romans is relaying a truth about God on the cross, on the exact same mountain, in the exact same spot as Isaac. The exact same place David ultimately puts the head of Goliath. typological. Remember, there's a ram there, right? And the ram is what? Type of Christ. It's caught in thorns and thickets. Do you have the view do you have the view that Christ got caught? I hope not, because he's what? Omniscient, he made the thicket. 
how much power does Christ have? How much power does the thicket have? You think Christ got caught in a trap? But the ram is a type of Christ caught in a thicket. So what does that mean? How does it portray Christ? Omnipotent God cannot be caught in thorns or anything else. Stop it. There's a wonderful thing on the internet with Bob Newhart, bless his heart, where he plays a psychiatrist and a lady comes to him and she has all kinds of problems. You might have seen it. I hope you look at it. His solution to all her problems was stop it. That's all he says to her. Just stop it. That'll solve everything you have trouble with. We have a technical problem in the nursery, so we have to wait. The nursery staff is interrupting the lecture. Everyone's happy about that, I know. Okay. Omniscient God already knew what Abraham, he's out, God is outside of time. He already knew that Abraham would do what he did. It's a picture of what God has done, but a dim picture. We can't understand what God did on the cross. He gives us these little pictures so we can kind of understand. If you stood up and said, I know exactly what happened with regard to the forgiveness of sin at the crucifixion, you're a liar. All you can do is kind of understand it. It's a small, dim thing. Little tiny pieces is all we get. Why? How come we don't get that? How come he doesn't give us all the information? He just gives us a little tiny picture. How come he don't give us all everything? Where we know everything. Have some humility. We can't handle it. It's too big. So he gives you the little pictures. You do your best. You try. You, you care. He's God. You're not. So why did God say, now I know? Why did God say, your only son? How many sons did Abraham have at the time? He had Ishmael, he had two. So why did he say, your only son? Clearly that's a picture of Christ, right? So all of that is typological, just as 832 Romans is referring to a typological event. It's a dramatic theodicy. Did God, by the way, your only son, did he forget about Ishmael? Is that your view? Oh, he made a mistake? Stop it. John Wayne. I love John Wayne. I grew up with John Wayne. I think it was a whole lot better country when we all thought John Wayne was somebody to model after as opposed to what we got now. John Wayne said, as you know, life is hard. It's a whole lot harder when you're stupid. And that can be applied to the Bible. Understanding the Bible is hard. I'll give it to you. But it's a whole lot harder if you don't think Christ is God. You find one part of the Bible where you don't think he's God, then you just completely destroyed your understanding of Scripture. You're probably wrong everywhere. You probably have nothing right. The first mystery, right? Obviously, Genesis 22.12 and Romans uh, 8.32 have a much deeper meaning than the contemporary shallow sermons that are never-ending that you hear all the time. Start filtering those things out. Clearly, God is demonstrating his solution to sin at Genesis 22.12. That's what he's doing. He does it uh, all over his Bible. 
his solution to his omnipotent mercy and his omnipotent judgment in a collision, if you will. I use that term all the time. He demonstrates that this supposed paradox, it can be solved. This supposed paradox is all over uh, his word and his solving it is all over his word. He proves that he solved it. The angels thought it to be unsolvable. Humans today, we think it's unsolvable. Your Bible is filled with proofs that it's not unsolvable. Uh, Romans 8.32 and Genesis 22.12 are two places that prove that the solution of sin is not unsolvable. If you, if you don't recognize that, then you might come up with an idea that God doesn't know Ishmael. Or he finally figured out that Abraham was going to do something weird. It's what God does. He has solutions. And we, we're, we're Hebrews 5.11ers. We think that's a t-shirt. Are you a Hebrews 5.11er? If you are, then you think there is no solution to sin and Christ isn't God. Because those are the same thing. You understand that? You have to know that Christ is God to know that there's a solution to sin. If you take the deity away from Christ, there is no salvation. The 511ers don't know that. They don't know that the passages that, that abound in his scripture. And pa- passages never teach the inferiority of Jesus Christ. Never. I feel like Winston Churchill. Never. Never. Romans 8.32 is just another that connects to Genesis 22. And Genesis 15, there, I finally caught up with Supper Dave, who was way ahead. He's three pages ahead. And Matthew 26.36 through 56, which is Gethsemane. Okay, let's try another one. Let's go back. i got five or six minutes now. How am I doing? Whew! I have some soda if I want to get through this. We're going to go back to this definition of lazy and wicked. So back to lazy we go. One more time. To repeat the repeating. God's definition of lazy at Matthew 25:26 is not that this is a failure of a physical act. It is a spiritual failure, a willful rejection of a spiritual truth, a direct disobeying of a commandment from God to believe something. So now we're at Proverbs 15:19 again. The way of the wicked and lazy man is like a hedge of thorns. Aha! Thorns. So the way of the lazy man, which by the way, thorns, thorns, right? Thickets, thorns. The way of the lazy man is like a hedge of thorns. Back to 22.13 of of, uh, Genesis. Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Did you ever wonder about that? Here's Abraham. I'm going to pretend I'm Abraham. I look up, and behind me is a ram. How did the ram get behind him? Have to pass him? Okay. There's a ram in the thicket. I don't see him. Abraham looks up, 
and behind him, how does that work? Probably have to solve that. How did the ram get behind Abraham? Why behind? You would think Abraham looked up and there in front of him was the ram. No, behind him is the ram. What's that trying to teach us? How about we throw in Genesis 3, 17, 18. Cursed is the ground for your sake. You will toil all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles. So I have thorns and thistles. By the way, what's the difference between a thorn and a thistle? Why do I have both thorns and thistles? Definitely now I've got thorns of the ram, I've got thorns in the curse, and I have thorns in the way of the lazy man. So all i got to do is start putting the thorns together. And by the way, the curse says, you shall eat herb. I've always wondered who herb was. Actually, it's a bunch of herbs. That wasn't that funny. There's a full plate of questions right there, isn't there? Back to the lazy man's hedge of thorns. This same lazy man says that his way is a, a, a hedge of thorns. And he also is the guy that says that there's a lion outside. And the lion's going to eat me. So he puts the hedge of thorns together with a lion that is going to kill him. Proverbs 22.13, 26.13. Same lazy man says the lion in the road is going to kill him, and his road is a road filled with thorns. The lazy man, the lazy fool, it says in Proverbs, repeats his foolishness as a dog will return to its vomit. In other words, there is no hope for a man who thinks himself to be the wisest of all. That's the context of uh, Proverbs, or all the Proverbs verse put together. So, let's ask some questions. The way of the lazy man is a hedge of thorns. What is a hedge of thorns? Draw a picture in your mind of a hedge of thorns. Let me ask again, if you come across a hedge of thorns, what would you identify this hedge of thorns as? Would it be an obstacle? Is it a wall? Is it a trap? Is it all of that? It says his way, his road, is a hedge of thorns. So I'm going to walk a road. The lazy man walks a road that is a thicket of thorns. His way hits, his, is the thicket of thorns. You would think he'd avoid it. The highway of a wise man, I'm sorry, the way of the wise is like an open highway. So the open highway is, is free, easy to walk. The wise has a free highway, if you will. A free way. But the, the lazy man, his road is a mass of thickets and thorns. He's going to try to walk through a hedge of thorns. So I could either go down the aisle or I could go down this space over here. Imagine it's completely filled with thickets and thorns. I'm going to walk through that. I'm going to walk it like it's a road. How am I going to get through it? Who would choose to travel through a thicket of 
thorns instead of on a free way. Who thinks like that? Why would they choose to walk in that? In it. I mean, he's completely encapsulated in it. It is a thicket of thorns. I'm going to just work my way through it. That's my road. It's my plan. It makes no sense, does it? Oh, but it does make sense. It makes sense to the lazy, wicked man. He has a plan. His plan is to be the opposite of no greater love. By the way, why does he walk it? Let me ask you a question. Does he walk it by himself? He never walks it by himself. He tells everybody that's with him, this is the way you go. Imagine, I'm over here, you're over here. Hey, we can walk down this freeway. And the other guy's saying, no, we're going through the thorns. This is the way to go. What's going to happen to everybody that goes through the thorns? It is the imposition of death. They're going to die in the thorns. The lazy man knows they're going to die. Why does he do with them? Because he wants them to die. No greater wickedness than to give your life for someone. I'm sorry, no greater love than to give your life for some for another. No greater wickedness than to take them through a road of thorns. That's where we're going next week.